Welcome to the Awe and Wonder podcast. I'm Sarah Kinsella. I'm Brenda Del Monte. And today we're joined by Beth Poss. And we're talking all about literacy in this series. So we're really excited to talk to Beth and pick her mind, her brain about um, some literacy instruction ideas and, and just see what she's been up to. And so Beth, let's hear from you. Um, do you mind starting off with just a little introduction? Tell us about yourself, who you are and what you do. Sure. So hi, everybody. Um, I am, my name is Beth Poss and I am um, a speech language pathologist um, by training. I spent over um, 30 years working in the public schools in a variety of settings, um, and including the last um, 10 years of my career, basically. Um, I was in school administration, so I worked in central office, um, supervising special education services, and then I moved into an assistant principal um, ship for the last three years that I was with the schools. Um, I retired in December of 2019 from the schools, and I went to work um, for Lesson Picks. Um, so if you're familiar with Lesson Picks, I do work full-time for Lesson Picks, but I also do a lot of um, consulting and um, uh, presenting outside of my role with Lesson Picks. And I'm also one of the co-authors of the book, um, Inclusive Learning 365 Ed Tech Strategies um, for Every Day of the Year. So um, yeah, I feel like I've been around for a long time and done a lot of different things. Um, but literacy, um, especially for students with complex communication needs, um, individuals who use AAC has always been really um, important to me. I always, um, always felt like it was just you know, such a critical um, component of um, of being an effective communicator was having um, access um, to literacy instruction and, and not just for communication, just for life, right? Like mm -hmm. I can't, I can't imagine, I can't imagine my life without books and literature in it. And so um, I wouldn't want any I wouldn't want any learner to be deprived of opportunities um, to develop literacy skills so that books can be an important part of their world as well. Yes. And what a great background you have with all the experiences and some in administration. I think that is just that brings so much to your perspective, too. And probably you had a great perspective as administrator. I, I know. We always love when, you know, there's someone who's been in your field and is in administration. You're like, yes, you get this. Um, that's so, so exciting. So I'm sure you have so much to bring to the field, partly because of that. And we love the book, um, Inclusive Learning 365. That's such a good book. Um, so thank you for all your work on that. Thank um, you. When you think back to your 30 years in education in the schools, um, is there a student that comes to mind that kind of blew your socks off when it came to literacy skills or someone that just kind of made you think differently about this? So I really think it's less about like the one student and there is, I have one student that, you know, we were just like, wow, we didn't know all that was in there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's really more about just those students who, because you provide effective literacy instruction start to develop skills and make progress. There's still kids with 
disabilities and they're still kids with complex disabilities mm-hmm. and they are the kids that are not going to ever um, maybe develop conventional literacy skills in terms of, you know, being able to independently read a chapter book all by themselves. Um, but they're the kids that, they're the students that, you know, because you continued with effective literacy instruction, and believe me, literacy instruction has changed so much um, in, you know, the, in, in, you know, throughout from when I first started in education to now, um, mm-hmm. but provide when you provide effective literacy instruction, you know it opens up the ability for them to you know find a word um, uh, based on the first letter sound in their communication device. It allows them to um, you know have more independence in their community in terms of. Um, you know, what they're seeing, um, you know, in the grocery store on menus that allows them to have favorite books that they enjoy um, and that they, um, you know, can be more independent with and, you know, allows them to to text to their peers and to their family or to write emails, um, you know, even if that's supported. So it's really less about that one kid who was like, wow, who knew that they were a conventional reader locked inside a body than it is about all of the kids that just um, had more doors open to them because we kept slogging along with literacy. Um, mm. Even though people said, well, they need to work on functional life skills now. It's like, I always, I always say the most functional skill of all, the most functional life skill of all is literacy, right? It, it opens mm-hmm. more doors. So mm-hmm. I think it's really about that. It's really about that instead of the one kid. I mean, I can tell stories about the one kid too, but it's about it's about all those kids that we just- Yeah. Well, you, you said something that sparked my interest and in, I know what I've seen over the years, but I feel like, um, I wonder what how you would describe what literacy instruction looked like when you started and what it looks like now. Cause to me, it looked like literacy entertainment and now it looks like instruction, but I don't know if you, I see you nodding, but I, so describe for um, people maybe just coming into the field, like what, what did that used to look like and what is, what is good literacy instruction now? Well, I mean, I go back to, I mean, yes. And I, I mean, I remember like you know, they talk about the pendulum in literacy instruction in general education, like it swings. Right. Remember, I remember, you know, hooked on phonics. And then I remember balanced literacy. And I even think about it in terms of my own children who right. are adults now. Um, and now, you know, now we're back to, you know, systematic sequential phonics in, you know, which is, is right, is really important. I, I totally agree with that. But I think mostly back, yes, you know, it was about, you know, entertainment. Um, and, you know, we, we did good things back then, like we adapted books for motor access and put page fluffers in and, 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 and all of that. But I just go back to all of the years that I spent, I remember I had like two or three summers where I got hired in the summer to adapt books, um, meaning to symbolate um, mm-hmm. books, right? And so we symbolated all of these um, books for, um, uh, so that, you know, we made adapted versions of Jenna texts 
um, which was great that we were making adapted versions of gen ed text, that we made an adapted version of, you know, whatever, Romeo and Juliet or something like that. But mm-hmm. then we symbolated it. And we spent so much time, you know, symbolating text um, and thinking that that was going to um, improve reading skills and communication skills for our students. When the reality is, um, it's it doesn't, right? We we know now that symbolated text is not an effective strategy um, for reading. It doesn't teach kids how to decode a word. It's simply um, and and that at best, it helps them um, memorize an association for a word. And at worst, it just overwhelms them. So they don't know whether to look at pictures or text or anything. Right. Um, and so, I'm just going to just clarify for people that simulated text, like you described really well, is just adding a picture to a word. So or adding a symbol to the word. And so you'll see this. We, we still see this, right? Oh, we um, do. And so, yeah, thank you. Thanks for explaining yeah, that. Yeah, no, you're welcome. Yeah, no, please. Um, yes, exactly. It's where we would put a word, a picture for every word in that text, we would put a picture to, to go with it. And we would usually have, you know, the pictures above the word or below the word or, or whatever. It wasn't, um, um, and and so it's kind of like the when, when we know better, we do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is there is no good research out there that shows simulated text improves reading for anybody, let alone for students with disabilities. Um, and there is um, um, certainly much more research that shows that we need to um, provide comprehensive literacy instruction, including um, <clears throat> strong alphabet awareness and phonics instruction, along with um, uh, comprehension and vocabulary for students, even students with complex communication needs, and that those students with complex communication needs, the same way that repetition is so important with other aspects um, of learning for them, that this is not something that we give up on, you know, the the, the rate of success is going to be slower, um, and it's not something we give up on um, so that we can instead address functional functional life skills. Cause you know, we need to learn how to, it's, it's way more important that we learn how to set a table. Um, yeah. Right. Than, right. Than, than we know language. how to unload a dishwasher and sort the, you know, I would so much rather. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you my, you know, my husband still doesn't know how to unload the, the knives and forks <laughs> and spoons from the dishwasher. And he's totally functional in other ways. <laughs> you know, I, th- I remember I remember those the reading like oh wait symbolating text doesn't help kids learn to read and I began to take the symbols out of the message window of AAC and noticing that kids were hitting the message window and seeing what that did and paying attention to text more and you're right it's no better do better right so it's like it was it was it, di- it not only changed the literacy instruction but a little bit of the AAC stuff and even um not being afraid of of um, buttons that don't have any picture at all, the ones that have just words and even removing a picture from a button if you knew they had that sight word. I mean, there was a lot that kind of went together with that um, literacy and AAC when we kind of realized, ah, that's not actually 
do that's not achieving what we hoped. And by the way, saving us a ton of time and laminate and <laughs> all the things that was oh, that yeah. into that, right? Because Absolutely. that was a lot of work. Yeah. So um within your role of AAC and literacy, what are some of the guiding principles that you've learned along the way? Oh gosh, there's just so many. I mean, I think um I think the importance of wait time just can't be understated. Um, it is it, it, for us as adults with um, with finely um, tuned communication skills, we find wait time really difficult, right? Mm -hmm. um, if I were to wait and pause, for five seconds before responding. I'm going to do that. I'm going to count to five seconds in my head. It would feel like to us, it feels awkward. Like there's silence mm -hmm. that needs to be filled. Like they're not yeah. paying attention or right. But we know that our learners with complex bodies um, and or who are using communication systems where there is not the same motor automaticity that we have with language, or even those um, individuals who have um, <clears throat> emerging oral language skills but are trying to figure out like that motor processes, um, five seconds is really not that long of a time. Um, and so I think it's that value of, of wait time. Um, I used to so I, I worked with a student many, many years ago, um, and we kind of figured out that the time that it took her to respond to a question, so she would, you would ask her a question, and both for the motor organization, the language processing time, and the organization of a response in her head, that it took about 12 seconds for her to be able to respond, and that... <clears throat> When we didn't give her that time, she just sort of became this passive, you know, she had become this very passive learner where she knew no one was going to give her time or she would say something, but it would be like so last, right? Like it would have like related to something we said like five minutes ago or something mm -hmm. like that. And she mm -hmm. just, it was just, there was this big disconnect. But when we gave her the time that she needed and reinforced that and didn't, a strategy that a lot of people would do would be like, now you think about it and I'll come back to you. But it's like, that doesn't make you feel like what you have to say is that important. And then there's all these other messages and things that are you, am I supposed to listen to what my peer said also and listen mm -hmm. for the next question while I wait for that person to come back to me and I can answer that question. It's like, no, the respect that we give that individual is to sit there and, and wait for that response and to wait there with I'm I want to know you know with the attitude of I want to know what you have to say so I think that's one of the biggest things is providing wait time and knowing that we don't have to fill the silence as much as we are inclined to want to do so right um to to not have and I'm the worst about that my kids will tell me mom you don't have to talk the entire we don't have to have <laughs> every moment in the car and it's like I know but it's like it's just empty right and I so our inclination as social beings is to fill that silence um, but mm -hmm. to give that 
that wait time. So I think that's I think that's one of those things. I mean, to realize that that's with communication, but it's also with, you know, the time that it might take them to process the visual information that they're receiving in a t- in text, you know, all of that. So I think wait time um, is is um, is probably is probably one of those things. Um, that that brings something to mind, though. I what I love about um, being able to videotape now on your phone is that you can actually see the wait time, right? Mm-hmm. When you watch the video back. I had a boy though that he was doing two step scanning, auditory preview, right? So he was writing a story this day. And um, he was filling in a word. So it was like, okay, so once upon a time, there's a boy and uh, and I'm like, you know, and he went to animals. I was like, okay, who's on the walk with the boy? And it did. It took him like 20 seconds to even start the switch scanning. So he's scanning with his head. And then he goes through the animal choices two or three times and then finally makes its selection. And from the time I asked the question to the selection was two minutes. I mean, he was engaged in that. It wasn't just dead silence, but he was engaged in that. But that is a long time to wait for a single word. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so, he was so engaged in, meaning he was so excited about it. But you realize he's processing language, but, you know, something would happen and he would startle, right? Like all the startle reflex and then, um, there, you know, he'd cough and he'd do these different things. It's like just can, just keeping his body um, re- engaged to enough to do two-step scanning was so laborious, but he was so proud of the story when it was all done, you know? And I I love that video. It's a painful thing to send to like play in a class because it's two minutes long, but you, you almost want to because you want people to go, listen, this is what, sometimes this is what literacy looks like. Sometimes this is what word choice looks like in AAC. It's giving them the time to go all the way through this, you know, the scan choices, especially because he was still kind of linear in that way. And I think about um, how much learned passivity happens when we don't wait. And that learned passivity is so dangerous. We should be afraid of it. We should be afraid of teaching kids that if they just do nothing, we will reduce it to a yes, no question. Or if they Mm -hmm. just do nothing, we will simplify the task, right? We should be afraid of um, being part of teaching learned passivity, Mm -hmm. you know, which I think wait time is huge around that. And I like what you said, Beth, about, you know, giving them that time and that expecting pause and, and because it is a teaching strategy that you would say, hey, I'll come back to you, you know, you see this in Janet classrooms or other, in all the classrooms and, and it makes sense. But then I really, that kind of stood up, stood out to me to, to say, well, the student really needs that time and and that full focus and that that strategy isn't isn't the best for for this situation. Um, I really appreciate you pointing that out. Yeah, and not and again, there's times that it might be that you might say to everybody, all right, you're going to take a minute and um, and compose your answer. Like I've asked a question, um, you're going to, you know, tell me what your answer is and I'll wait and listen, you know, for when you're ready and when everybody's ready to respond as opposed to I'll come back to you. Let me go talk to other people because then it's like, oh, right. it wasn't that important. And am I supposed to, like, how now do I divide my attention and all of that? Right, um, right. It's just part of that 
um, it's also a way that we teach advocacy for, we teach autonomy, maybe advocacy is the wrong word. Like we teach that autonomy, that we teach that you are important, right? That you are an autonomous individual who can, who, who what you have to say or write or do is a value to me right now in that moment. And I respect, um, I respect you enough to give you that. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, and I just think that that's, you know, a way of teaching that individual that I value you, right? Like I value, I value your contributions. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe in you. I believe that you have something to say and that it is worth my time to wait for you to say it or write it. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is and I can't guess it. So I'm going to wait. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love and I that. think when, when I talk to adult users of um, adults who use augmentative communication and who are um, and who are um, um, who have developed um, really, you know, competent communication skills using um, AAC, you you can you'll they'll tell you like, uh, you know, I'll come back to you with that answer. Let me compose my answer. Come back to me. Or please wait and don't finish my sentence. Or I've mm -hmm. had some that have said, you know, you are more than welcome to, you know, and they'll sometimes they'll have a message on their device, like saying, you know, you know, you're welcome to, you know, finish that sentence if that helps our speed. Or please don't finish my sentence for you. Mm -hmm. Just really interesting when you talk to adults who are, who are using, um, you know, who have access to robust communication and are using it effectively, um, you have to listen to what they want. But we have to start off by giving um, those younger learners um, that respect that what they what they're producing is what they're generating is is really really um, important. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so. In the field of AAC and literacy, what what do you feel most passionate about? Do you have a certain kind of focus or passion? I mean, I think it comes down to like, you know, the David Yoder quote, nobody is to anything to be able to read, write, and play. A lot of times people leave the and play off of that quote. Oh, yeah. Nobody is to anything to read and write, but it's nobody is to anything to read, write, and play. Mm. And it's, it's that, it's that presuming competence, um, but it's also, um, everybody has the ability to make progress from where they are now, right? Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's also kind of that philosophy of, I can't do that yet, right? Right, so, right. Um, it's not that, you know, sometimes people think that presuming competency means um, assuming that um, everybody is uh, cognitively intact um, all the time, right? No, we know that. We know that there are individuals who have, um, who have uh, cognitive disabilities, right? But it's that presuming competence of um, nobody is to anything to to make progress, to go from point A to point B. And maybe um, for someone, point A is here and point B is all the way here, but maybe for someone else, point B is here 
or it's point A, point five before you get to point B. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's just having that, you know, that um, belief that somebody is going to make progress and looking at looking at the small things. You know, you know over- when we interviewed Musselwhite, she said there's presumed competency. And if they're not competent, then we're presuming potential. Right. right? Exactly. And that, 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 that's kind of what you're talking about, too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That potential, you know, and um, I mean, it's interesting, you know, over the years, people have people make us those of us who are in the field of special education. Um, they make us or who work with people with disabilities. They make us out to be like, oh, you are such a wonderful person. You work with kids with disabilities. And I'm like, I'm like, first of all, you get paid for it. So it's not like mm-hmm. I'm completely altruistic. And second of all, it's like, it's not this, like, I'm not, it's not like this totally, like, I'm just this really good person. I'm not, I'm really not that good of a person, right? It's that you learn to look for the small steps that people make and you take joy in that progress instead of, um, bemoaning what they haven't done yet, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, there were years ago, there was years ago that I worked, um, I was actually, I was actually a supervisor at that point. I was a supervisor in early childhood, um, in our early childhood programs in our school district. And I went out um, with a staff member who was doing a home visit for a young child who had very significant um, disabilities, was very motorically complex. Um, they weren't sure at all what she was perceiving, hearing, vision, you know, her body was, you know, very limited um, with, um, with you know, purposeful movement that she was able to control. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, it was really all about like over a period, of, so I went out over a period of time just to support and coach the staff member because they were like ready to be like, well, you know, I don't know why we're doing this. I'm like, well, because at three years old, you don't stop providing services, let alone, but it was also, it was like showing like, hey, look, remember last time, you know, she didn't, um, she didn't turn her head when you um, jingled those bells. And this time she turned her head when she jingled those bells. And the t- you know, and then next time, like, oh, not only did she like turn her head when you jing- jingled those bells, but she like looked up at you, like when you stopped, like do it again, right? It's those little things. It's really about those incremental steps and recognizing right. them and, and using that, paying really, really paying attention to the data that way. Mm-hmm. When we have interviewed parents on here, one of the moms, I remember um, she, whether it was on the recording or or a sidebar, but she was like, you know, I got really good at celebrating inch stones instead of milestones, you know, and I have taken that with me uh, over the years because I, um, we, it is kind of the, the privilege and the joy of working with the population is getting to celebrate inch stones, right? Because every, every small increment works that direction. But what you're talking about too, is sometimes people think we're going to, you know, they're nine, they don't know how to read. They've had instruction for six years. If they don't have it now, they're never going to get it. We're moving on to life skills. Like we, you already mentioned. And I, I mean, I've had kids as young as 10, they're not doing any more, um, any more academics. And I thought, um, if it, let's say it takes the rest from 10 to 21 to have some literacy skills, even if it's 
um, being able to identify the first letter of a target word, right? Worth it. Totally worth it. I mean, I the, the amount of the autonomy, the amount, the increase in autonomy, the increase in the ability to say something that's not in already not in your device, right? I mean, the only way you get to say exactly what you want to say is if you spell it, because you, not every word is pre-programmed. So, I, you know, I think that um, celebrating those inchstones is important, and I think. It some of that has to do with the way IEPs are written and objectives are written within that, so that you can't you are showing gain and you're not trying to um, you're you're celebrating every step of the way. The backfire is my own children. I'll be like, you walk and talk, go. You know, like I have no no patience for for uh, they they better be making big strides because the physical um, limitations are are so challenging um, when in working on you know accessing literacy and things like that. But I think those um, those inch stones are so critical, not only for this child and for the parent, but for retention of staff. Like you have to know that you are making progress and that you are making a difference mm -hmm. and. Um, I think when people feel like, oh, goal's not met, goal's not met, goal's not met, it's like, let's change the goal because and, and we're that, making gains. Yeah. And with that, I think we have to look so carefully and stop assuming that the barriers are within that person, but instead mm -hmm. that they're the barriers that are imposed by the strategies or the tools or the resources or the or the philosophies that we're using. Because if, yeah. a, if a child, even a child with significant disabilities, um, if they're, you know, if you, if your, if your response is, well, we've been giving them literacy instruction for six years and they haven't made any progress and it's time to move on to functional life skills. My response is, well, let's take a look at what exactly was the literacy instruction. What did that literacy instruction actually right. look like? Because if it doesn't look, if what you're actually doing is not like, so go back and look, oh, well, we do letter of the week. Well, we know letter of the week is not the most effective way, or we simulate text, or we, you know, we are working on, uh, we're using a sight word uh, uh, curriculum to teach um, them. Well, we know none of those things are actually effective reading uh, and literacy strategies, or we do hand over hand, or we give them papers to trace, or right, so let's let's back up before we before we say this kid isn't making progress. Let's back up and really look carefully and critically at the type of literacy instruction that we are delivering, because chances are the barriers have been within that and not within the disability of that of that child. Because okay. I've seen too many kids with significant disabilities that when given really high quality, best practice, literacy instruction, comprehensive literacy instruction, that they do make changes, they do make gains. And again, I'm not talking mm -hmm. about going from emergent to conventional in one school year for that kid that has significant disabilities um, I'm talking about that we can see data-driven changes, that we can see increases in letter recognition, that we see um, increases when we give them good access to um, alternative pencils that we actually see, uh, we see where they are starting to develop um, written 
uh, communication skills, all of that, right? But mm -hmm. we have to really carefully examine what we are doing before we say they're not making progress because mm -hmm. it's probably much more tied to what we do as instructionally. And I know, I know I've done all of the, I've done crappy literacy instruction. I have <laughs> done lousy literacy instruction um, in the past, right? And so it's okay. Like you, you, you read and you change and you research and uh -huh. listen to, you know, awesome podcasts like this, <laughs> change what you're doing. Um, and so, you know, you don't give up on you, you don't give up on that. I've seen I've seen too many um, teenagers and young adults with complex needs developing skills um, when other people had given up on them. Um, yeah. Yes, we've heard from AAC users who said, you know, I, I taught myself because nobody was teaching me. So I, I did it. And going back to what you were saying, it's kind of like you need to be an observer first and observe and provide the right tools and strategies. And I was thinking about Brenda, you know, talking about taking video and how we're so lucky to have that, like just all the documentation and, and pictures of their beginning writing. And then you really see how that changes. And especially for families, how great is it to come into an IEP meeting and say, look at this, you know, these are some, some evidence of, of how their literacy has changed. And um, instead of all the things they're not doing, still. So I love that. Um, yeah, I love that perspective. Just don't give up. <laughs> right. The other thing I know about you, Beth, and because we've talked about it before and um, is that um, as the kids get older, adjust the stimuli to be age appropriate. That's one thing that you and I've talked about a lot because it's like, we think, oh, we're teaching um, emergent literacy skills. Here's Brown Bear. And yet you are 10 years into Brown Bear. And I have my own experience with that. I, I have dyslexia. And I I remember I in kindergarten, we had to read this, quote, reading textbook that was called Six Ducks in a Pond. And every year I read Six Ducks in a Pond till third grade. And everyone knew it was a baby book. Everyone knew it was a kindergarten book. They had no other book at that reading. And, you know, it was thick. It was chapters of this. And no other book at the at my reading level. Um, so I read that book for four years. Mm. And I never got better. See, so they finally, my third grade teacher finally just handed me a third grade book. And I, and I read it. I just... They just were hammering this, the, 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 the only way they knew how to do the very beginning of instruction was something that was so quickly not age appropriate. And the motivation and um, the, oh, just the self-perception, right? Of just like, I am still reading a baby book. I must not be smart. I mean, all the things that our kids must tell ourselves when we stick with age, um, not age respectful material as we're teaching emergent literacy. I, I'm sure you have stuff to say about that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, and there's, there's, there's so many, oh, absolutely. It, it, it kind of, you know, it's age respectful. It's matching to student interests. It's, mm -hmm. to, it's, it's the idea of repetition with variety. If we're just doing the same thing over and over again, and we're not changing things up, it's, repetition with variety where we're changing things up, but we're not just abandoning something and, and going on to something that's completely 
um, completely different. Um, yeah, there's, um, right. There's so much, there's so much. And the thing is, there's so much, there's so much high quality children's literature out there, um, that can be used across age levels. Um, there's so many, um, there's so many resources that we can use to generate and create our own um, materials, right? To, to make things that are age respectful, that are gonna meet those needs. Um, there's just not any excuses for anybody that's still reading The Hungry Caterpillar and Brown Bear, Brown Bear, you know, past second grade <laughs> with any readers. Like, I'm so sorry, mm -hmm. but, you know, um, you know, that's just not, you know, there's, there's just so much, there's just so much more um, out there um, that, that, that we can find. And there's access to it, right? Free, right? Like there's fabulous websites that are out there. Um, I love uh, Unite for Literacy. Um, and that's, uh, is a free resource for um, digital picture books um, that is available out there. And yes, some of the picture books in there are totally um, for much younger kids, but there's a lot of, of, um, of picture books in there that are totally appropriate with older kids. Um, there's, um, you know, resources that are free for teachers like Epic, where you can find so many different um, books available on there. Um, there's tools. I mean, everybody's got technology. I mean, I work for Lesson Picks. You can create loads of of um, of of books, custom books in Lesson Picks, but you can use PowerPoint. You can use Google Slides. We have no dearth of, of resources available, um, mm -hmm. you know, for doing that. And finding, like, even things like, I, I know for me, one of the things that's most challengeable, challenging is, um, so we talk about decoder. There, there's, there's two different kinds of texts that we often use with emergent learners, with emergent readers. Um, and those are predictable text and decodable text, right? Mm -hmm. So predictable text would be a book like Brown Bear, Brown Bear, or The Hungry Caterpillar, where I can look at that book, look at the pictures, hear it, and know that there is a predictable line that I can fill in and I can figure out what's happening. Now, sometimes that type of book is great for language. When you're working on language, like that kind of a book can be fantastic for working on language because you're going to get a sentence stem in there that you're just going to change up a little bit and you can really practice, you know, um, that I see, uh, right, whatever it is um, that you can, that you can practice. And so a book like that, and I don't mean brown bear, brown bear for little kids, I mean for older kids, but I mean a book with predictable text like that, mm -hmm. um, I can, I can use, and it can be wonderful for language. At the same time, that's not teaching literacy because I don't actually need to be able to read anything to, to read that book. All I have to do is memorize the sentence stem, the predictable text, and then fill in based on what the picture is on the page that I'm seeing, right? And that's the problem with, you know, when we looked at, when we, when people look at the types of reading experiences that have been going on in general ed um, until fairly recently with the whole changes um, uh, to the to the science of reading, you know, we're really paying attention to the science of reading has, have been issues. 
And there's been this shift to using what's called decodable text. And that's where you have a text that is comprised primarily of words um, and word um, like uh, words with letters and word forms in it, word families that have been explicitly taught, right? Um, and so that's where you get, you know, um, um, you know, uh, Ned likes red. Ned has a red bed. Um, uh, you know, Ned fed um, his teddy bear, right? Like you're you're getting right. into you know, you want to have something because you know you've explicitly taught the short E and you've taught that word family ED. And so now you want to have application to it. Um, and a lot of times, you know, that can be really boring and it can seem very um, age like, um, like, like not age appropriate or not uh -huh. interesting. Um, if you're, if you're looking at some of those commercially available um uh, decodable readers that are out there. And so a thing that I recently started doing is um, I started using AI, like ChatGPT, mm -hmm. or um, I actually like Bard better for this. Bard is the Google product, ChatGPT mm -hmm. is um, Microsoft product. So I said to like, I put in for my prompt was um, write a five sentence story um, with um words that rhyme with, and I'll put in like, if it's hat, you know, words that rhyme with hat um, and that um, is about, uh, uh, you know, um, about something like, like, you know, that takes place in a, um, uh, you know, in, I'm trying to think of something that would be like interesting, right? That takes ocean. place. The, the yeah. ocean or, right. you know, right. whatever it is, dinosaurs, you know, or whatever place. the kid's interest right. is. Whatever the kid's interest is. And sure. so it'll give me like, and it's never complete. It never is like, it's not like perfect, but it gives uh -huh. me a place to start. So, you know, there's tools out there where we can create the resources that our students need. We don't, there's not an excuse to like, say, well, there's nothing for those, there's nothing for those kids, because there is. And if there isn't, if you can't find it commercially available, then just make it. And, and it doesn't have to be, the other thing is it doesn't have to be perfect or pretty or, you know, outstanding all the time. It can be simple, um, but okay. you know, find those resources that, that you can. So, um, you know, my little AI tip of the day is you can use yeah. it to quotable text. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. That's a great tip. I love that. We're so lucky. I, I mean, we, we're lucky with AI and we're lucky that there are just so many resources around now that you just, you can find it if you know where to look. And if you don't, then ask somebody. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, sometimes that's what, you know, I feel like that's what a lot of people say, even when we get on consults is like, they just need an idea. And then they can mm -hmm. run with it, which is kind of what you're saying. Like chat GPT or, or Bard can give you an idea and you're a speech pathologist. So you can make sure you can add the components of a narrative or you can make sure that there's, you know, it's a more complete narrative story so that when you shift off of decoding, you can focus on WH questions or however you guys want, however you want to implement AAC, the AAC part to the literacy. But you know, just getting the idea. It's like, okay, now I have a context. Now I know, now I, now I, all these rhyming words with at, you know, can go together with a there, the student directed um, interest, right? So I love that idea. And I think that's another thing we get a lot of is like, well, what does it look like? 
what does what does AAC instruction look like? How do we not AAC? Excuse me. What does AAC and literacy instruction look like? I mean, even when you read Comprehensive Literacy for All, they have a ton of examples in there. But can you generalize that? Can you then go, okay, well, the kid in the book had this interest. My kid has that interest. How am I making that work? This is they're working on um, first letter, or they're working on word endings, or they're working on prefixes, or they're working on suffixes, right? So it's like, how can I, how can I vary the instruction to be student directed and at their level? And I think it's so um, such a great idea, Beth, to be like, we'll use the resources that are available, and a lot of them are free. And Epic came big, I think, in 2020 when we were doing a lot of online stuff, and it was like, well, what do you want to read about? I mean, because I don't have to own that book. You know, I don't have to, I'm not hitting Barnes. I mean, think about how much money we spent at like Barnes and Nobles, even before Amazon was very big. I'm just buying books all the time. Now I'm dating myself, but yeah, I love the free resources is like unheard of in in our careers earlier. Right. And now it's like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what's at your fingertips? Mm -hmm. Beth, okay. Back to school. I'm excited about literacy. I've got all these ideas. If I'm new to literacy for this population, do, what's your suggested starting point? Um, I mean, the first thing I would do is I would sit down and read, Brenda mentioned it, I would read the book Comprehensive Literacy for All um, by um, uh, David Copenhaver and Karen Erickson. Um, it is going to provide a really great baseline for understanding um, what to do to start working with students with significant disabilities um, and literacy. Um, it's not it's not going to give you step-by-step directions for everything, right? Uh-huh. Um, but it's definitely going to give you that kind of background. I mean, so that's definitely, I, that would probably be you know, um, the place that I would start as far as that. But for somebody who's like walking in and is like, oh my God, I don't have time. Like that's a book. I don't have time. Like somebody should have told me that back in June. Um, I would say um, one of the most effective things um, to start with is simply by um, starting with the protocol of letter of the day, right? So it used to be, so when I was when I was in, and this isn't that long ago, right? So like five years ago, I was an assistant principal, right? I'm walking into um, a, a kindergarten classroom, gen ed kindergarten classroom, and they're doing letter of the week. And there was already really good research. There's been research for a while that says that letter of the week um, is not um, an effective way to develop um, alphabet knowledge. That letter of the day is much more effective. And it's simply because of the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So when we do letter of the week, we don't even get through the whole alphabet two times, right? We don't get through the alphabet two times. When we do letter of the day, we have the potential to get through the alphabet like up to six times a year. What a difference. Um, right? And so really doing this and and we get to more of the letters. I mean, you know, you feel so sorry for the kid whose name starts with T, Right, like or Sarah, mm-hmm. your name is with an S. Mm-hmm. And like, if we wait, if we do letter of the, you know, because your name is, I always ask teachers, what's or I, I ask teachers, what do you think is the most important letter? What's the most important letter? And people are like, 
well, the letter A or the letter T, because it's really it comes, you know, it's so often or the letter, you know, whatever. And the answer is the most important letter is the letter that every student's name starts with. So for yes. every student, it's the name, it's the letter that their name starts with. Mm -hmm. And so when we do a letter of the day, within the first 26 days of school, we're going to have hit the first letter of every single kid's name. So, right. So, you know, it's not the first month because you're not talking weekends and everything, but by, you know, October, you're going to have hit every kid's, um, the first letter of every kid's name mm -hmm. um, in, in the alphabet. So starting off with that, you know, just a really practical thing that a teacher can walk into a classroom um, and and change a practice. And again, not just for kindergarten, this would be all the way through if you're working with learners with complex needs, having a letter of um, the day where you, everything, you know, you've got both explicit and embedded instruction around um, that letter. And it's okay that you know that your learners aren't going to get, they're not not every learner is going to get it right away, right? But it's okay because you're going to keep cycling back to that. And you're not going to ignore all the other letters. You might be, you know, it might be letter of the day, might be, you know, G, but you, you know, you come across a word um, and you talk about, oh, remember we did the letter of the day A already. And this word starts with A, right? You don't, you don't just forget about all the other right. letters only for that, but having that. So that would be, I think it's like an easy um, an easy thing that um, that folks are used to doing, like a letter of the week kind of thing, um, is just changing it up to letter of the day. So that would, you know, just walk mm -hmm. in and try that and see the impact that has. And then remember when you're teaching letters that it's not just the letter name, it's the letter name, it's the letter sound, right? It's the... Um, it's the letter form, right? So it's, you've got to be explicit um, about all, all three of those things. It's not just, um, it's not just one or the other. Right. Um, Good advice. In the, book, in the book too, they talk about letter of the week. That's like, it's like if once you figure out what the letters of the week is, then you know critical thinking is required. The answer is always D because it's the letter right. of the week is D. When you're doing it by day, then they're they're doing some critical thinking. Like, oh, that sounds different than yesterday's right. letter. That looks different than yesterday's letter. That's voiced. I mean, they're not they're not speech pathologists, so they're not thinking about, um, you know. The, the difference between us and a z, right? But you're 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 they're having to use some problem solving, some critical thinking skills to go. Okay, it's not the it's, it wasn't yesterday's letter. Or, or look at that. That's a word. You know, Sarah has S and A, and we just did A last. You know, like they're more aware of the rest of the word. I think one time, sometimes when you're doing letter of the week too, you're only focused on first letter. And so when you're doing letter of the day, you're see, you're noticing the letters that you've just done in the rest of the word, you know? So I think it's, it makes a lot more sense to do it that way. And I think you're right. I think it's letter of the week is still a pretty common practice, even general education. And I think it's um, such a good place to start. Something that people can start tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great mm -hmm. little book out there. Like I have it on my shelf, but I don't see it to pull off right now. Um, there's a great little book out there. It's literally like an 80 page book lit um, called No More Teaching a Letter of the Week. And it's all about the research behind letter of the day. It's a, written from a gen ed perspective. It's written from an, a, a kindergarten kind of ish 
perspective, but there's a lot of great things in there that um, special educators or that people that are working with um, even older students with more complex needs at an emergent literacy level can take away um, from that. So it's a great, like you don't have time to read comprehensive literacy for all, just do the little, you know, no more teaching letter of the week. Um, yeah, love to check that out. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so as we wrap up, gosh, I feel like this has just flown by. So what do you want people to know about the work you're doing right now, Beth? Um, wow. I mean, I, um, you know, I work for Lesson Picks. My, my day job is I work for Lesson Picks. And so check out Lesson Picks and see all the awesome um, literacy resources that are there. But I, um, I'm, I do much more than Lesson Picks. And so um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be presenting, um, with Brenda, um, one of my sessions at Closing the Gap. We need to start planning that, don't we? Um, <laughs> we're, we're presenting, um, at Closing the Gap and I'm presenting, um, a number of, uh, of sessions at Closing the Gap that'll be in Minneapolis in, um, October. I will, um, be at, um, the Talking AAC conference in Michigan, which is like the week after closing the gap. Um, I will be at ASHA, um, both at the Lesson Picks booth, but I'll also be presenting um, at ASHA as well. Um, so just lots of different things, lots of different things going on. Um, yeah. And, you know, if somebody's like, wow, you know, I would love for Beth to come and talk to my group, you know, reach out to me. I, I do I do presentations for different school districts and different groups um, as well. So Great. Uh, yeah, lots of, lots of ways to come and, and check out things that I'm doing. Is the best way to get a hold of you through email? And if so, we can post that with this. Yeah, yeah, the best way to get a hold of me. Um, so you can always reach out to me um, at my personal email, which is possbeth at gmail.com. Or if what you really want to know about is lesson picks, just email me at beth at lessonpicks.com. Um, and, and you can reach out to me about either at either email. It doesn't really matter. I'll respond no matter what. <laughs> okay. Sounds well, good. so much. This flew by because um, you're so practical and you gave so many nice examples, I think, that people can apply right away. So that was super helpful. Um, thanks so much, Beth, for, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you.